quoting Genesis 18 with Sarah, what Paul was doing is reminding the Romans, God's word never fails. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. God in heaven, you are the judge of all the earth. And as we approach your word this morning, we see before us the ministry and faith of Abraham, and we're reminded of our own faith, that the just shall live by faith. Lord, as we consider these things, as we consider your word, which is eternal, which is unfailing, Lord, we today desire it more than a newborn infant desires milk, more than hungry, starving men desire food. We long to receive from you this morning from your word. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would encourage us, convict us, equip us for your glory, for our joy. And Lord, that you would use this church that you have so graciously brought us to be members and attenders of, you'd use this church, Shoreline, for your glory in this community. Lord, we have continued to pray and thank you and trust you for our past, for our present, and even for our future. And we ask, Lord, that you would get glory as we continue to wait and save and trust for a future facility. Lord, thank you for being so faithful and good. We ask, Lord, now that you would equip us by your spirit as we study this text for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we continue our study of... Genesis, and though chapter 18 has seemingly nothing to do at first glance with the covenant promises of God to Abraham, we actually would be erroneous if we believe that this is just random. In fact, this chapter has everything to do with the intimate relationship that God has with those whom he keeps covenant with. Remember, the word covenant, it is rooted in relationship. It's not contractual only, where I'll keep my end of the bargain, and you keep your end, and everyone's signing the dotted line. Now, here's husband and wife. That's not the idea. We know a covenant, there there is that agreeing together, but it's rooted in relationship. And so today, as we open up this particular chapter, we're going to see the closeness of Abraham's relationship with God, particularly as we look at his ministry to God and to others. In fact, as we open up not only this chapter, but also the second chapter from here, chapter 19, uh, we are going to see some great great contrast between Abraham, known in Scripture as the friend of God, and next week, chapter 19, his nephew Lot, who is on the precipice of judgment. And the plan is to cover all of chapter 18 today and all of chapter 19 next week. And in so doing, we'll see a stark difference between this bright noonday meeting with Abraham and the dark despair when we meet Lot in chapter 19. And what I find especially insightful is the difference in their posture as men of God who have been called to lead their homes. We'll see that particularly next week as we look at Lot's failures. 
But consider these contrasts between chapter 18 and chapter 19. Here, Abraham is seated near the oaks of Mamre at the door of his tent when God arrives. Lot, as we'll see next week in chapter 19, in contrast, is settled in Sodom and he's sitting in the city gates. Both of these men will convince the angels who appear here as men to come and to stay with them. But Lot's hospitality indirectly invites the attention of wicked men to seek to come and abuse them. Abraham intercedes for those who are righteous, and he begs God to spare his wrath upon the sinful city. Lot, on the other hand, intercedes to the sinful men, and he asks for them to leave his family alone. In fact, he goes as far as offering his own daughters to them in order to appease their sexually immoral appetites. Both of these men plead for a city. Abraham unselfishly cries out to God to turn his wrath away from the righteous in Sodom, whereas Lot selfishly prays to God for the comfort of the city of Zoar and his own protection. Both of these men have a family member who will laugh. As, we look to, as we'll look today, Sarah will laugh at God's promise, but later next week, Lot's sons-in-law will laugh at his urgency and mistake it as a joke. But God coming to visit is no laughing matter. In fact, when he visits Abraham, it's here to bless Sarah and to establish his covenant as she conceives Isaac. But when God visits Lot, it is sadly in judgment. And the wicked Moabites and Ammonites would be conceived and birthed from Lot's daughters. So today we're going to look at the ministry of Abraham. It's our sermon title today. And next week we're going to look at the missteps of Lot. Now, if you're new to our study, we go verse by verse through the Bible. We are in the book of Genesis. And last week in chapter 17, uh, in fact, in the whole chapter, last two weeks, we were introduced to God's sign of the covenant with Abraham. It was the sign of circumcision. And we saw how Abraham obeyed God. He circumcised his son Ishmael and all the men of his household as soon as God left him. And God, remember last week, changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And he confirmed his promise to Abraham about this son who would be born to them. And his son's name would be Isaac. Does anyone remember what Isaac's name means? One who what? Very good. One who laughs. And last week we saw Abraham laughing at the sheer impossibility of he and Sarah having a child. And today we're going to now see Sarah laughing, but this time it seems that she's laughing out of unbelief. The day that we're studying here seems to take place very soon after the events of chapter 17. And it really would have had to have been within a few days and at a max around two to three months of what we covered last week. In fact, some Jewish commentators argued that the visit of these three men were actually angels who came to check up on Abraham and see how he was recovering from his circumcision. Uh, now, that is conjecture, and we definitely don't see that in the text, but what we will focus our attention on is his ministry. The ministry of a man, listen, who's believed God, who's had his faith credited to him as righteousness, so he's been justified by faith. He's a recipient of God's covenantal blessings, so now he's in right relationship, right standing with God, but not just in a forensic, judicious way. He's now in a right relationship to the extent Scripture calls him a friend of God. And this man now, in an overflow of his relationship, now ministers accordingly. 
The same is true for you and for me. Ministry is not what saves us. It's not the means of our salvation, but it's the fruit of it. We've said this often. I've drawn this, I've beaten this drum, as, and I'll keep beating it until I die. But we aren't saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, the end of that section in verse 10 says that we, have, uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But it doesn't say we're saved by those good works. But we are called to do good works. And so the person of faith will no doubt minister in an overflow of his relationship or her love for the Lord and minister back to the Lord and to others. And so this morning, what I want us to do in this lengthy chapter is expositive, but look at it from the lens of Abraham's ministry. And I think for all of us, we'll also gain insight into our own ministry because we all have a ministry to do. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says that we should be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our work is not in vain. And he's speaking that to all of Corinth. We all have a ministry to do and let's be steadfast and immovable because it's not in vain as we minister. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see four things. Abraham's ministry and in general ministry is, it includes a willingness to serve, verses one through eight, it includes trusting in God's word in verses 9 through 15. It includes upholding God's ways in verses 16 through 21. And it includes interceding for others, verses 22 through 33. So let's look at verse 1, a willingness to serve. It says, And Yahweh, the Lord, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Notice where he is. He's settled back again at these oaks that belong to Mamre. And this is a significant place for he and his family. Remember, this is where he built the altar when he first came back from Egypt. This is that spot. This will be the spot eventually as we study in Genesis that Abraham purchases a field nearby. And there happens to be a cave in that field. And in this cave, in this field, this is where he buries Sarah. This is where he is buried, where Isaac, where Jacob, where Rebekah and Leah are all buried. So this is a significant spot. This is home. And notice that the time of day is, it says, the heat of the day. Now, in the Middle East, in this particular part of Canaan, this would have been midday. If it's here in Florida in August, it's any time of day, <laughs> morning, noon, or night. But in this particular place, we would argue this is probably the part of the day when people would, would uh, leave the field, they would leave the work, the agrarian society would go inside, they would take a siesta, so to speak, midday. And so ostensibly he's taking a reprieve, he's in his tent, and the oriental custom would be if someone came by at this part of the day, that you would extend to them hospitality, you would offer them something to drink, you'd offer to wash their feet, you'd offer them some bread. And so Verse 1 says that it's the Lord that appeared to him. But then in the first half of verse 2, we read, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So who are these men, and what's happening here? Now, at first glance, you may be tempted to think, oh, it's the Trinity. It's the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's three men. But verse 22 tells us that two of the men went towards Sodom while Abraham stood still before Yahweh. In fact, chapter 19, verse 1, informs us that the two men who accompany the Lord are actually embodied angels. And then there are multiple verses 
where the divine name Yahweh appears in chapter 18. If you want to jot these down or just mark them, verse 10, Yahweh's mentioned, verse 13, verse 17, verses 19, 20, and 22. They all mention the divine name Yahweh, the Lord, all caps. Abraham addresses him in verse 25 as the judge, capital J, of all the earth. And throughout the end of the chapter, as they're dialoguing together back and forth, Abraham addresses him not only as Yahweh, but as Adonai, meaning lowercase l, Lord, a master, someone who has servants who you uh, extend uh, honor to as someone who has authority. And so it's my understanding for those reasons that this is another theophany. Remember when we when we studied what a theophany was, a theophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I believe this is a theophany as Jesus is accompanied. He's the angel of the Lord. He's the Lord accompanied with two warrior angels. Now note with me the urgency of Abraham, beginning in the second half of verse 2. It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth. That's pretty standard to bow, but the running is very atypical. And he said, O Adonai, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. You see, Bedouin hospitality with which Abraham is extending to these men is, is pretty typical here. Uh, he's not just doing this because this is the Lord. So I want to make one point. He's doing this just out of general hospitality. But I also want to interrupt that point and counter that point and say at some point, I think he does recognize that this is the Lord. And so to call someone master, to request them to stop and to rest, to offer feet washing, to offer some food, these are all part and parcel of ancient Near East hospitality customs. So this is quite normal. However, there's proof that Abraham may have actually suspected he would have known this is the Lord. Notice verse 6. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. You notice the theme here. It's quick, it's quickly. And then, verse 8, he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared. He set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, all of this is above and beyond the normal custom. So it's one thing, this is hard for us to, to, to capture ancient Near East hospitality because this is not a normal thing that we do. This is not an, a normative thing where we just stop by. In fact, in many people's ideas, a stop by unannounced, unprovoked is offensive to us. Like, well, why are you here? I'm in my pajamas. Why did you stop by my house? It's not welcomed in our culture, sadly. And it is one thing if someone stopped by and you said, hey, come on in, grab, grab a, would you like water? Would you like a soda? It's something very different to say, have a seat. I'm going to start making you baked Alaska. I'm, I'm going to prepare, a, you know, a four course meal for you. I'm just stopping by. That, that's a little above and beyond. And so notice with me the extent to which he goes. He, he offers them foot washing and rest and cakes and curds and milk and even the calf. Notice that he has Sarah quickly 
knead together three seas of fine flour to make cakes. Now, that may not make sense as a unit of measurement, but you and I use ounces, we use cups, we use pounds in our baking and our cooking. So let me just show you how much food Abraham is presenting to them. So first of all, an omer is the one person serving size unit in the Old Testament, an omer. And so that is a measurement that would sufficiently feed one person. Uh, Exodus 16, 16 tells us this. So you can look that up later. An omer could feed one person. An omer is one third of a sea. So a sea as a measurement is three times the typical amount that you as a person can eat. When I was growing up, my parents would take me to Shoney's and they would say, okay, son, I know they, they need, you know, they weren't great parents, but they took me to Shoney's and, um, and one of the things that, um, that they would do is they'd say, hey, son, uh, or kids, we're, we're taking you to a buffet and you need to eat four plates to get your money's worth. And so it's kind of ingrained in my head. This is like going and getting a full portion and then going back two more times. It's way more than what was needed. And so notice Abraham has Sarah prepare three seeds, three seeds. So now we have nine servings of food for three perceived men. You see, I believe Abraham knew he was waiting on the Lord. The fact that he's running, that he's acting quickly, that he prepares an overabundance of food, that he stands by while they eat. He even includes a calf for them. Just think about this. Abraham's having a fellowship dinner with the Lord Jesus. You and I have had, uh, no doubt, guests that we may have wanted to impress. So we invite them over to our house. And then, at least in the case of our household, our wives are quickly cleaning everything and even scrubbing the baseboards. And then they show up and our wives say, I'm sorry the house is such a mess. And we're hoping that it's a person of prominence and, we, and importance and we can bless them and we can make them feel that they're respected. And you see that here. You see humility. You see willingness. You see respect shown from Abraham to the Lord. Theodore Epps says this, think of it. The Lord did not honor the sumptuous halls and princely palaces of Egypt with his presence, but he accepted hospitality in the tent of a pilgrim and stranger. Not to belabor this point, because I don't think this is the point that Moses was going for as he wrote Genesis, but since we're on this subject, I'd be remiss if I didn't just for a minute draw our attention to the service of Abraham to the Lord in what I call generous hospitality. And that is when we use what God has blessed us with to bless others. God has blessed all of us with something, and generous hospitality is using that to bless someone else. Note with me the eagerness. The, the word quick or quickly keeps coming up. This wasn't begrudgingly or slowly, okay, let me see what's in the pantry. There's an eagerness here. Notice with me the, the effort. This is not half-hearted. No, Abraham was all in. Note with me the expense, the cakes, the curds, the calf. These are not cheap. Abraham is practicing generous hospitality, using what God has given him to bless God and others. Rosaria Butterfield wrote an incredible book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I'm reading it currently, and it's very convicting and very encouraging uh, to stretch us out of our privacy and to use our homes, in, in the case of this book, but also whatever God has given us to bless others. She says this. She says, a generously hospitable house speaks for itself. Look at all the cars parked outside. Look at the lights on. Look at the kids playing on the tire swing. 
Look at the neighbors already gathering. Look at the open door. It's here for all to see. And she goes on to say, let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, your front yard, the community gym, the garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that's the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Amen. God has given us something. Let's use it for his glory. Well, Abraham expends his energy. He, he expends his expense with great eagerness. And that really is ministry. Ministry is a willingness to serve. Lord, here I am. I'll use my life for your glory. I'll do what you call me to do with whom you call me to do it whenever and however you call me to serve. Warren Wearsby shows that Abraham's ministry was personal. It was immediate. It was speedy. It was generous. It was humble. May our ministry be the same. You don't have to be employed full-time or part-time to be a minister. We've all been called to use our life for God's acclaim, for his glory. Now, up until this point, Abraham has not yet given Sarah a very vital piece of information. And husbands, I'm not going to go there, but he's not told Sarah yet. From the text, we've not read it, and this seems to come to her as a surprise. He's not yet clued her in, you are going to have a son who's going to be the son of the promise. And of course, Sarah has not yet read Genesis 17. <laughs> and so notice what happens next. It's very, very vivid and important. Let's look at this second section and see how ministry includes trusting in God's word. Verse 9. They, so we have the men, the angels, the Lord said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Now, some commentators believe that uh, there was a, a back part of the tent with a flap that separated the women from the men. And so Sarah's in the second half of the tent. We're not really sure of that, but we do know she's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord said, notice he's speaking to Abraham. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, God had already said this to Abraham. So why is he saying it again? He said it in chapter 17, verses 16, 19, 21. So why is he saying it again? Well, it's pretty clear. He's saying this for Sarah's benefit. She's right there at the edge of the tent entrance. And so we know chapter 18 takes place within moments of the preceding chapter, or at least within two, three months, because remember the time frame that he said in 17, in here in 18, is around this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Verse 11 tells us, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And then it says this, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now some scholars disagree what is meant here, but it's clear from scripture that the way of women is the menstrual cycle. In fact, I want you to jot this verse down, Genesis 31. Remember when Rachel had taken her father Laban's household gods and she was hiding them and so she put them in to the camel's saddle and then she sat on them? This is what it says in Genesis 31, 35. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you. Here it is, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. The way of women is simply the menstrual cycle. We know this is a monthly process that continues from adolescence to middle age. And medical professionals say that around 12 months after the last menstrual cycle, a woman enters what is known as menopause. That means medically her ovaries are no longer able 
to produce eggs. Therefore, she's no longer able to conceive, to be pregnant. This is not a matter of, Sarah, figure out some new conception techniques. Try some of these vitamins. Hey, have you heard of essential oils? That's not the idea at all here. The idea is this is impossible. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Therefore, the news of her hearing that she would bear a son is more than a surprise. It's a medical impossibility. Apart from God's intervention in restoring her physically to being able, so, so moving out from menopause back into being able to conceive, if God didn't intervene, this would have been impossible. So look at her response, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, <laughs> saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You can circle the word pleasure here. It's actually a word connected with the word Eden. And so it's unknown if she's talking about the pleasure of sex or the pleasure of bearing children. I would argue the second. She's, argue, she's, she's saying here, oh, so now that I'm old I'm, and my Lord is worn out, now I'm going to be able to have the pleasure of conceiving or bearing a child? But don't miss the laugh heard around the camp. This laugh is given divine disapproval because unlike Abraham's laugh in chapter 17, this isn't a laugh of surprise, it's a laugh of scoffing. It doesn't say that she laughed out loud. In fact, verse 12 says she laughed to herself. And yet, she laughed in a way that God sovereignly, along with the two angels, stop eating and look over toward the tent. And so, look how the Lord responds. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, again, he's addressing him, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And we would say, no. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, we looked at this last week. There is nothing too hard for the Lord, nothing too impossible. But I want to draw your attention to the word hard in verse 14. The word for hard in the Hebrew here is often translated marvelous. And so it can be translated as this. Is anything too marvelous for the Lord? That puts an interesting spin on it, doesn't it? Yes, is anything impossible or too difficult for the Lord? No, nothing's impossible or too difficult for the Lord to accomplish, but also nothing is too marvelous that he can't bring it about. God delayed Isaac's conception not on accident, but on purpose. He was intentionally nurturing the faith, not just of Abraham, but also, as we see it coming to fruition, in the life of Sarah. In Genesis, up until this point, we've seen how Abraham's faith has, been, has become uh, growing. It's been developed over these last several years. But now we see Sarah's opportunity to choose to trust the God of the impossible. But even though God asked the question, she should have said yes and amen. Notice how she defends herself in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. You see, her deceptive denial, it says, was motivated by fear. There's no external evidence that we read. It just says she laughed to herself. And so she doubles down. I didn't laugh. And there's no immediate judgment for this lie, but God does correct her falsehood. And this is the first time he directly speaks to Sarah. He's been speaking to Abraham. He's like, no, actually, you laughed. And though this seems to cast Sarah in a negative light, 
I'm greatly encouraged when I read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to these words of encouragement as the writer of Hebrews puts Sarah in the right light. It says in verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, here it is, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see, Sarah, her hope was not in her own body. This body was well past the opportunity to bear children. Her hope wasn't in her husband's body, which both Paul and the writer of Hebrews describe as being as good as dead. No, her hope was in the one who was faithful, and she considered him faithful who had promised. Both of them, both Abraham, both Sarah, have now learned the importance of trusting in God's word. They got there differently. There there was a little bit of growth needed in both of them, but they both got to the place of understanding how important it is to trust in God's word, to trust in the God of his word. Now, Paul the Apostle uses this same exact text to make an important point in the book of Romans. We've already studied Romans, but in chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, he calls back to this moment in Israel's Genesis to point the Romans' attention to who truly is Israel in the Scripture. It's not just those who are circumcised and who descend naturally from Abraham, a.k.a. he calls them the children of the flesh, but it's those who share the faith of Abraham, the children of the promise, who are spiritual offspring. And in quoting Genesis 18 with Sarah, what Paul was doing is reminding the Romans, God's word never fails. You guys know this. God told Joshua, the one who was raised up to take over for Moses, he told him twice. Remember, he said often, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. But then two times he says, hey, Joshua, not one of the words of my promises have failed. Not a single promise. You see, this is Israel's hope. This is our hope, that, that God's word is unfailing. And so we can place our trust in the word of God. The word of God can be dismissed by the skeptic. It can be argued against by the historian. It can be challenged by the textual critic. It can be derided by the derelict. It can be smeared by the scoffer. But it is our hope because it's unfailing. We can trust in the word of God. And that's what ministry includes. In ministry, as we minister to the Lord and others, we must trust in his word. Because there's going to be times in our life when the demands of people the demands of time, the demands of resources and attention and energy and bandwidth and just discouragement will max us out, will tap us out. And it's in those times, it's in every time, but it's particularly in those times that we must cling to Christ and we must cling to his word. When we look at our life and we say, I don't know how to answer this situation, Lord, but your word is sufficient. And so I don't know why I'm going through this. It doesn't really matter why, but your word is sufficient. Your word is enough. Your word is unfailing. Lord, I need to trust your word. And so I thank you and I receive it and I submit to it. The scripture says those who trust in him will never be put to shame. So may we have that same heart of ministry that we trust in God's word. Now, the story changes its focus here. And these three men get up from their meal and then they look east towards the valley. So Sarah's laughter may have provoked God's attention But now the groans of Sodom direct his attention elsewhere. And that brings us to our third section. And again, this may seem odd. Why is God including Abraham? We'll see why here. 
And this is that ministry includes upholding God's ways. Notice verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, capital L-O-R-D, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So now we're told the purpose of the arrival of these, quote, men was to observe sinful Sodom. And notice the Lord confers with himself. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I like what Amos 3.7 says. It says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. When God's going to do a work uh, in the Old Testament, he will uh, alert uh, the people of God through the servants. So God chooses to disclose the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. And here's why. Verse 19 is the, the hinge verse of this entire chapter, the most important verse, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. How was Abraham to keep the way of the Lord? God says, I've chosen him. I'm going to disclose to him what I'm going to do in Sodom. Why do we have this whole scenario in this destruction? It's not in keeping with the narrative. It has nothing to do with the covenant promises on its surface. And yet, here we understand what God's doing. God wants to reveal this to him because I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh. What is the way of Yahweh? Notice he says, by doing righteousness and justice. So I want to unpack this for a minute. I want you to circle those two words, righteousness and justice. These are two words that are often coupled together, paired together, we find them throughout the Old Testament. They're incredibly important words. Much like grace and peace in the New Testament are often linked together. Righteousness and judgment, or uh, justice, are the Hebrew words sedekah and mishpat. Now, we just quoted Amos 3, but in Amos 5.24, God describes these two, righteousness and justice, as almost the two banks of a river that flows. These words together... Righteousness and justice describe someone who stands before God rightly and before man rightly, walking in proper relationship with both of them. In the case of righteousness, standing in obedience before God in his law, and in the case of standing before man, in care and concern for fellow image bearers. Now, today we hear the word justice, and some of us bristle at that. We go, oh, I don't like when you say the word justice. And maybe you're thinking of how culture has spun justice and they've defined it as social justice. I want to make sure that we're careful to define it as biblical justice. And so we're not going to go into that today, but biblical righteousness and justice, these, uh, these go hand in hand. In fact, Ezekiel 18 verses 5 through 9 describe what this looks like. It says, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, there's those words, Here's what this looks like. If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, and so that's in right relationship with God, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, 
gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man. And then here it is again with God. Walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, please don't email me later in the week and say, I thought there's none righteous, no, not one. Okay, I get that. That's, that's a broader idea of right standing before you. I get what you're saying. But biblical righteousness and justice, it's more than just retributive or just getting what you deserve. It's ultimately about restoring to a right relationship. And, and so when we stand before God in right relationship, when we stand before those who the world deems as worthless, and we stand before them rightly as well, we are doing justice. We're doing righteousness. And so that is what ministry involves. So notice verse 20. Why include Abraham, though, in this whole judgment? Verse 20. Then Yahweh said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this is not because God can't see. He's just too far away in heaven and he just needed to get a closer look because his eyes were strained. David Gusick says, uh, because the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous, God would only judge Sodom and Gomorrah on direct, accurate knowledge. We're not told this because God did not know, but to demonstrate to us the thorough character of God's knowledge and integrity. You see, God says the outcry is great. There was an outcry by those who had been oppressed, those who had been mistreated, abused, maligned, exploited. And God heard the outcry. That should be an encouragement to those I know in this room have been taken advantage of by someone else. The outcry to God is great. But the sin is grave. Now, all sin is grave because all sin left unchecked will lead to the grave. But the sin in Sodom was particularly notable. Now, this is not without controversy, and I want to make sure to give an apologetic here of what the sin in Sodom was, because this is being disputed by the LGBTQ community. There are two passages in Scripture I want us to understand that explain why God judged the city of Sodom. So if you're taking note, please jot these two down. First, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. This is the proof text verse that's used by men like Matthew Vines and others who defend uh, gay rights. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now, the LGBTQ community would say, the defenders of that community would say, okay, the abomination that's listed at the end there is just what was just read. It's the, it's the ease and it's the, the pride and, and not helping the less fortunate. And that's all it is. But I would look at this and it's clear they're haughty and did an abomination before me. And I removed it when I saw it. So God is referring back, throwback to Genesis 18. Uh, and so the, some would assert, okay, God was not judging the sexual sin, but just their mistreatment of their fellow man. But see, Jude clears this up for us, and this is why we need Scripture, all of Scripture, to interpret all of Scripture. Jude 7 says this, 
Just as Sodom, this is the second verse I want you to jot down. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So that should put the argument to rest. The sin of Sodom was not just, not only sexual immorality. It was also the, the selfish excess and the ease, the haughty sense of self-importance. And yes, it was coupled with, more immediately, an abominable sexual appetite that had no regard for God and no regard for fellow man. And I think the reason that Abraham's being included in this is because Sodom as a city embodied the very antithesis of God's righteousness and justice. In other words, the ways of God. God is bringing Abraham into this situation because as verse 19 says, so that he will one day teach the lesson of Sodom to his children, to generations under him, that one day in 2022, there would be children of Abraham who are coming together to learn the lesson of Sodom and to realize that there is a way of doing the way of the Lord. It's righteousness and justice. We, we walk in right standing before God and with our fellow man. We take these lessons and we, we teach them to our children. That's what Abraham was called to do. In fact, Psalm 145.4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's why God's including Abraham in this. It's to, to say, I want you to know how important it is to keep the ways of Yahweh and to transmit that to your children. It's an object lesson in upholding God's ways. And that's what ministry is. As we minister to the Lord, we're to uphold God's way. Sometimes that means knowing what he's doing in the world, knowing how he's at work in the community. And it always means standing before him rightly and before others rightly. Now, in this final section, we get a glimpse of Abraham's relationship with God as we look at how ministry involves interceding for others. So notice verse 22. The men turned from there, they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before Yahweh. So these two men, the angels, are going to verify on the testimony of two or three witnesses the sin of Sodom. Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's a good question. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So then Abraham very humbly, I'm just dust and ashes, Lord. I don't deserve to speak to you, but what if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there, do I hear 20? And we get all the way down to 10. For 10 righteous, I will spare the city. Verse 33, as we, we're not going to read every verse, but down to verse 33, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So observe what's happening with me in this interchange. Abraham is standing still before Yahweh. He's having humble, bold advocacy for Sodom. He, note with me, he's appealing to God's justice. He says, you're the judge of all the earth. Will you not do what is just? Surely you will do what is right. 
and what is true. You see, that's the bigger picture here. The bigger picture here is the judge of the earth will do right. Now, that does not for a minute mean that the focus of this section is that bad things shouldn't happen to good people and good things shouldn't happen to bad people. We could argue, you know, there's that book that came out that said, um, you know, why bad things happen to good people. We would all say, wouldn't we? We'd say, there are no good people. <laughs> we're, we're all sinners. Uh, the bigger question is, why, do any, why does anything good happen to sinful people? Uh, but the Proverbs, particularly chapter 29, they show us sometimes judgment comes upon a people when their rulers or representatives are corrupt. And so that does happen. If there's a, a sinful person in leadership, the nation or the people can be judged for that, the king. We know the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We have God's common grace that he bestows on. So that's not the bigger picture here. The bigger picture, because we could argue that, you know, the fate of the righteous is going to be completely different than the fate of the wicked. They may die in this life, but they're not going to die in the next. That's not the bigger picture. The bigger picture here is, will not the judge of the earth do right? God, you are just in your judgment. And so Abraham humbly, based on the character of God, what he knows of God to be true, he humbly approaches God and he appeals to one of his attributes, his justice. And let's not overlook for a minute that the city of Sodom would have been spared on account of 10 righteous people in it. That wicked, sinful place, God would still be at work among them. Maybe that will encourage us when we look at places, evil places like Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas. We say, ah, oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket. No, we, we could say God's still at work. God's, God's doing something there. We look at one state and we go, oh, man, can anything good come out of that state? Yes, God is doing a work even in California. But I, I, I love the reverence with which Abraham prays here. I love this reverence. And I love what Kevin DeYoung had to say. He said, Abraham never loses sight. And we should not lose sight when we pray that there is this gulf between us and God. That he is in the heavens. We are on earth. He's the maker, the sustainer, the almighty one. And we are but dust and ashes. He understands his position. We don't see anywhere here that Abraham is demanding that God be just. We don't see that he's in hubris or we just prayed in our time of confession about pride. He's not coming pridefully before God. No, this is incredibly humble. And this intercession, does, it's not just for Lot. He doesn't say, Lord, could you just spare my, my nephew and his family? No, he's, he's interceding for the righteous who dwell in the city of Sodom. Now, apparently, there weren't even 10 righteous people because, as we'll see next week, the destroying angels go unhindered to uh, wipe out the city. And so that tells me, as we'll see next week, Lot had no influence in the community to uh, bring righteousness and justice back, to bring the ungodly to faith in Yahweh. On the contrary, as we'll see next week and in the New Testament, Lot's very soul was vexed. He was corrupted in his soul by the wicked influences around him. I wish Abraham would have gotten to five. If he just would have gotten to five, maybe the city would have been spared. But here we have a, a, an actual time and place, a city on the earth that incurred the righteous wrath of God. Abraham intercedes for their salvation. And isn't that a key part of ministry? Uh, that we don't do the work in our own strength. We rely on the Lord, but we also intercede for others. That we pray for people who we stand before God 
and lift them up and we stand before these men. Maybe it's a, a relative, a coworker, and we intercede for God on their behalf that they would be saved. This is what it means to be in ministry. Abraham intercedes. Now, just for a minute before we wrap up, as we consider our Lord Jesus, there's much in this passage that points us to the gospel. We look at Abraham's ministry. We see this is also a glimpse of our Lord's ministry. One person pointed this out. They said, in this, I don't have it on the screen, but they said, in the same way that the pre-incarnate Jesus came to Abraham, yielding to his hospitality, not choosing to send before him a legion of angels to awe the patriarch, but coming in the guise of an ordinary wayfarer, so did the Lord Jesus come to his own and make his entrance among us. I like that. You see, like Abraham, Jesus served the one true God. He trusted in the word of God. He upheld righteousness and justice, the ways of God, as he stood before the Father and before man. And often Jesus interceded for others, not only from the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, but also when Jesus pronounced woes over various cities. That, in a sense, was an intercession. Did you know Jesus himself mentioned Sodom? And it may surprise you to learn what he said. He said this in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24. He addressed different cities, and he, he looks to Capernaum. He says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why was Capernaum condemned by Jesus? Why? Because this is where he spent the, the most time teaching, performing miracles, doing ministry. The city of Capernaum would face a stricter judgment than Sodom because God incarnate had come to tabernacle with them. And they, in some respects, had a front row seat to the glories of their Christ. And yet, though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And lest any of us this morning look with disdain and disgust at the sin of Sodom and the fate and go, that's right, they get what they deserve. Or we shake our heads at the judgment that Capernaum would incur. Listen, a far greater fate awaits those who reject God's son and his invitation to come. Repent of your sin and trust me for your salvation. Today, if you are not a believer, you may not face the fire and brimstone that rains down from heaven and ends your physical life, but you will absolutely face the torment of fire as God's wrath is poured out upon your pride, your sexual abominations, your comfort, your ease, your lack of concern for the unfortunate, your unbelief, and ultimately your rejection of God's Messiah, and you will suffer spiritual eternal death. And today, as Abraham does for Sodom, I pray to God for your soul that you may turn in faith, that you would be declared righteous before him and before it's too late. For those of us who are in Christ, may this narrative remind us of the importance of ministering to the Lord and to others. As we close this morning, we'll be singing, There is One Gospel. And these words remind us, There is one gospel to which I cling. All else I count as loss. For there, where justice and mercy meet, he saved me on the cross. 
No more I boast in what I can bring. No more I carry the weight of sin. For he's brought me from death to life. And I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do that in a greater way today. Let's stand together. We'll sing that, but let's pray. Thank the Lord for his mercy. We do thank you, Heavenly Father, the judge of all the earth, for your mercies in Christ. The fate that Capernaum, that Sodom incurred is a physical, it's a physical judgment that ends life. And yet, Lord, there's a far greater and weightier judgment that awaits those who are unrighteous, who have never submitted and trusted, repented of their sins and turned to the Savior for their salvation. That fate is eternal separation and death. And God, we desire, as we look out at our community, we desire to pray for the friends, for the family, for those who we know who are not yet followers and those who trust Christ. And so, Lord, we, as Abraham does, we intercede for them. We plead for you to be restraining your hand just another day longer that they would come and receive your mercies. Lord, we thank you that you're sovereign in our salvation, but then in the mystery of God, you include our intercession and our gospel proclamation. And so we thank you for these things, Lord. We ask that you would draw us near as we are reminded and as we refresh each other singing these lyrics that we stand on the gospel. We stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have no other place to turn. You have the words of eternal life. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have not given us the judgment that we do deserve, but that judgment was placed upon your son. And because of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, we now can be in right standing with you. Thank you, Lord, for that right relationship. And Lord, let our ministry be an overflow of that relationship, that loving relationship we have with you and you with us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.